Oh, hello there. I'm Melinda Catherine Gross. And I'm Michael Nixon. And we like to talk about murder. Well, you like to talk about murder, fictional murder, a <laughs> lot, uh, whether anybody wants you to or not. That's right. And Michael doesn't talk about murder nearly enough. So I would like to invite you all to join us as we explore the material of our favorite monster. Hannibal Lecter. Yes. Each week we will be discussing and dissecting the film and TV appearances of Thomas Harris's infamous serial killer, Dr. Hannibal Lecter. Mostly, I'm going to try to get Michael to eat people. I won't. You will. I might, but there's only one way to find out. Tune in to Having a Friend for Dinner, available on DuelingGenre.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Until then, bon appetit. Ooh. Dueling Genre. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Protagonist Podcast, where each week we look at a great character and a great story. I'm Todd Mack. And I'm Joe Dorowski. And this week we are discussing the anonymous narrator and Letty Hempstock from the novel The Ocean at the End of the Lane by Neil Gaiman. So how are things, Joseph? I'm doing well. How are you, Todd? Great. It's very late tonight, and we've got a double record, so... It is very late. I had some meetings and uh, here we go. So we're just going to jump through the the banner and into uh, The Ocean at the End of the Lane, which was a 2013 novel written by Neil Gaiman, one of our three time repeated uh, uh, creators of story on the on the podcast. Uh, We talked about him with the Graveyard Book very early on in the podcast run. We talked about him with Marvel 1602. Um, and the ocean at the end of the lane tells the story of an anonymous narrator. It's in the first person and we never, he, he's never addressed by name and he never says his own name in his head. So we don't know what his name is. Uh, and he is back as an adult in his hometown for an unspecified funeral, probably his mother or his father, though it's never said specifically when he's kind of feels called to go visit an old neighbor neighbor's house. And when he is there, he suddenly vividly remembers a terrifying supernatural adventure that happened when he was seven years old. That's a that's pretty good. Yeah, that's, I'm not going into the details of the adventure yet. We'll get to that in just a moment. But I do have a little bit of trivia about the book. Uh, the name Hempstock. So we said we're talking about this unnamed narrator and a character named Letty Hempstock. Uh, that may ring a bell if you've read much Neil Gaiman. Todd, was it ringing a bell for you in this one? No, it wasn't. But it doesn't surprise me. <laughs> uh, in the graveyard book, the ghost of the witch. Her last name is Hempstock. I was going to say, is it the witch's ghost? Yes, and apparently. I, I don't remember this, but there's also a character in Stardust who is a woman who has the name Hempstock. And Neil Gaiman has said that is deliberate <laughs> that that name gets sprinkled throughout. And it is all apparently one large family in his mind. Uh, the book debuted at number one on the New York Times bestseller list. So well done, Neil. On that. <laughs> it's a fair debut. Yeah. Always nice. Uh, it was nominated for several awards, including a Nebula Award and a World Fantasy Award, and it, wa- it won the British National Book Award for Book of the Year. So if you have to win one of those, I guess Book of the Year <laughs> for all categories is something. <laughs> I would have voted for it. Yeah. Uh, Focus Features has the rights to do a film adaptation and Tom Hanks is attached to produce the film and Joe Wright is attached to direct, but it it remains in pre-production. I couldn't find any information even on who was writing the script, but the rights exist, have been claimed, and some people are attached to the project. Um, 
And obviously, if you listen to that brief uh, summary at the at, you know just a moment ago, this is not an autobiographical book. However, Neil Gaiman did mine his own childhood for some elements. Uh, if you listen to the acknowledgments at the end, or or read the acknowledgments at the end, he he says some something about thanking his family for letting him borrow parts of his childhood. And the most specific that I saw mentioned is that um, in real life, his father's car was stolen, and the person who stole it committed suicide. Um, it seemed like by doing the tube from the exhaust pipe into the car, and that is a plot point in this story. So wow, interesting. I don't know if in real life Neil Gaiman was standing there and saw the body discovered in the car. <laughs> that happens to the unnamed narrator in this book, but there is a connection. Did you have any any past with this? Were you familiar with this book at all before reading it? For I just knew that time? it was out there and that it was really good and that I wanted to read it at some point. How did you come to it, Todd? I um so we have a very small local library. I mean, it's like kind of two smallish rooms. <laughs> It's really, it's a, it's just a converted old house into a library, but we have, um, the digital service that the library uses is called Hoopla and Hoopla is kind of amazing. They have lots of really great digital stuff and, um, and they have a lot of Neil Gaiman stuff, uh, available both, uh, to read digitally and, um, and in audiobook. And so, uh, I knew I was going to be driving to Utah, so I loaded up my, uh, my phone because it's like a 26 hour drive or something. <laughs> hmm. Uh, and I listened to this driving, I think I was driving to Utah and I just was kind of blown away by it. I really, really enjoyed it. And, uh, and I thought I really want to talk about this before I leave the podcast. So, yeah. so as I we noted, it uh, Last week, uh, if any listeners missed that episode, Todd will be leaving the podcast with episode number 200. So we are, he, he has snagged the, the last several, uh, you know, episodes for, for things he's wanted to talk about that we have not gotten to yet uh, between here and episode number 200. Yep. So uh, anyway, this is, I, I think I can say, hands down, this is my favorite game and novel that I've read so far. I haven't read all of them, but this one's pretty good. I haven't read all of them. I think Graveyard Book is my favorite overall, but this is this is really good too. It's it's a good choice for one of your final novels to talk about on the podcast, Todd. Cool. I feel like it it uh, like checks off a lot of the right boxes for me. Mm-hmm. So, it even has shapeshifters at one point. Spoiler warning. For those I was going to ask, does it? Yes. Does I mean it does or doesn't have <laughs> shapeshifters? <laughs> no, it does. It does. Which is, uh, I mean, it freaks me out, but uh, you know. Can't look away. <laughs> Can't live with it. Can't live without it. Uh, so before we get into the long synopsis, uh, listeners, we want to thank each and every one of you for listening and especially thank those who support us on Patreon. If you would also like to support us financially, we invite you to go to patreon.com slash protagonist and support our show with at least $1 per month. All supporters on Patreon at any level receive access to our special quick casts, which are shorter episodes in which we break down newly released films and trailers and give monthly updates on our fantasy box office. All patrons who support us with $5 per month or more get to choose a topic for us to discuss. So uh, without further ado, take it away, Joseph. All right. Uh, the book is narrated by an adult man who is back in his hometown. He just left a funeral for someone, probably his mom or dad, but we don't know for sure. And he is driving around the city where he grew up. He passes the lot uh, where the house he grew up 
used to be, uh, but the house is gone and it's been replaced by a newer development. He remembers that he had a friend who lived at a farm down the lane and he drives down there. At the farm, he finds a woman with gray hair who can't quite place him. And he says the last time he was here, he was a kid and she gave him warm milk fresh from a cow. And she remembers him as Letty's friend. She asks if he wants tea and he says he actually wants to go sit down by the duck pond. And once he does this, he suddenly remembers everything. And now the narration kind of jumps back to him as a seven-year-old, but this is all what's going on in his head as these memories are returning. He remembers that uh, as a seven-year-old, his mom planned a birthday party for him and his friends from school, but nobody came. And it is really sad, guys. (laughs) This description is pretty awful. Uh, but he insists that he just needs his books and his kitten to be his friends. But then his nice fluffy black kitten is killed uh, by a South African man who is renting a room in the family house. Actually, he's renting his old room from. Uh, so the narrator was kicked out of his room because the family was in a little tighter financial situation. And now they get new renters all the time. At this point, it's a South African man who one day walks up with a box and says, I killed your cat. Uh, but I pay all my debts and here is a new cat for you. And it is an ugly old Tom cat who is horrible. And I think his name was monster. Is that right? Todd? Uh-huh. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and monster is not a good pet. And uh, then a little while later, his dad is making him burnt toast as is their Sunday morning uh, tradition. And another part of this routine is that his dad buys him a comic book on Saturday for him to read. So his dad says the comic book must be, must've been left out in the car. But when the narrator goes to look in the car, the car is not there. Just then the phone rings and it's the police letting them know that their car was spotted abandoned at the end of the lane. So uh, the narrator and his dad go to get the car and they find the South African renter dead in the backseat in an apparent suicide. A tube from the exhaust pipe was fed through the window and Uh, while his dad and the cops talk things over, the narrator scooted off to the farmhouse where there's an 11 year old girl named Letty and her mom and her gran. The gran is milking a cow and gives him fresh milk. The girl, her mom and gran have a weird conversation about the man's suicide note, which the cops haven't found yet. It's as though they've read it and also know what is going on down at the car. The feeling of this conversation is not sinister. Like they killed the man. It's just, they know exactly what's going on. Um, they know everything. Uh, They know that the man was feeling guilty about losing money that belonged to other people uh, that he gambled away and he wishes he could pay it back. Letty and the boy go down to the pond, which the girl calls an ocean uh, that her people came from. uh, And they find a dead fish floating in the pond. The girl finds a sixpence piece in the fish that choked it. And she gives him the money for his piggy bank. Uh, later on, uh, so like the next, uh, the next day people start finding money in unexpected ways and places. And the narrator even has a dream where the bullies at school and his grandfather hold him down and force a coin into his mouth. And when he wakes up, he is choking on a coin, like an actual physical coin is choking him. Uh, and he goes to talk to Letty about it the next day. And she says, someone is trying to give people money, but not doing it very well. And they're going to wake something up. Letty. So good. (laughs) The way she talks is just so matter of fact about everything. Yes. Uh, And she reveals that everyone in town is having money problems, but the sort of problems that come from money showing up where it's not supposed to be. (laughs) And this is also (laughs) causing problems uh, as much as the lack of money had previously been causing uh, problems for the people in this town. Uh, They show old Mrs. Hempstock, uh, the coin that was in the narrator's mouth. And she studies it closely and says, this didn't exist yesterday. It has an old date on it, but I can tell it's new because the electrons are too smiley. (laughs) 
Uh, Letty says she better go bind the thing that is waking up and she takes the narrator with her to do it. They walk off and it's just kind of surreal what happens at this point. Like they start walking and then suddenly they're like nowhere. It's just weird. I can't quite describe exactly it, but Neil Gaiman can. It's wonderful to listen to. (laughs) Uh, And Neil Gaiman in the audio version, if you can get the audio version, it's totally worth it because he reads his own stuff and it's just the best. It really is. It is so great. I listened to the audio version on my library's um, uh, overdrive. Um, I was able to, to mm-hmm. just get up, get put on the whole list. I was hold number one of one, and the library had like ten copies. So as soon as someone was done with their copy, I got it. I didn't. I don't think I waited more than a day. And his narration is fantastic. So they're walking, and then it becomes a weird scavenger hunt. And Letty tells the narrator to hold her hand and not let go. And then they find a storm, and then there's sort of a living circus tent with teeth inside of the storm. <laughs> uh, I'm sorry if the summary's not doing this justice, but Todd, you can offer your own description. Well, I, I thought of it more as like, if you imagine um, like the sails on a ship. Billowing. But, but like the sails on the on the Black Pearl, or like a, like a cursed ship, right? And they're all yeah. tattered and torn and sort of blowing in the breeze like that. It's that okay. with a face. Yes. Uh, and it talks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so they, they find this uh, like fabric that's living and Letty tells it that it should not be messing with people. And the thing taunts Letty some and Letty says, I'm going to bind you even if I don't know your name. And she starts singing a song in an un- unknown language, though the boy knows the tune from a nursery rhyme because nursery rhymes are always creepy in supernatural settings. Yes. Just <laughs> universally. If you need to make something creepy, go with a nursery rhyme. Uh, the thing throws a bundle of cobwebs and rotting cloth at them. And the boy lets go of Letty's hand to catch it. And he feels a pain in his foot when he does this. Uh, he drops it and he grabs Letty's hand again. Letty finishes the, the song, uh, the binding that she's doing. And then they walk back to her farm. Back at home, uh, when he's back at his own house, the boy notices a small hole in the bottom of his foot where he felt the pain. He pokes at the hole and something is squirming inside of his foot. And he goes uh, to the bathroom and he's uh, very calm about all this. He goes to the bathroom and he grabs a flashlight and some tweezers. <laughs> And he sticks the tweezers into the hole in the in his foot and he grabs the end of something and he starts pulling it out and he realizes it's going to break. So he starts instead of pulling, he slowly starts twisting it around the tweezers and it's writhing and he feels it grabbing on inside of his foot as he's just very calmly twisting these tweezers and slowly sucking this worm out of his own foot. Uh, and it's almost all the way so out <laughs> when something snaps and he knows there's a little bit of the worm is still inside of him, but he figures that's not going to be a big deal. <laughs> And he uh, he washes the rest of the worm down the drain. He turns in the water in the bathtub and throws it down the drain. And then he nonchalantly uh, cleans up uh, the hole in his foot. Like he puts a little medicine on it, and then he goes to bed. And in the morning, a lot has changed in the house. The narrator's mom says that she has a job four days a week at the optometrist's office. So their new boarder, the one that's renting his, uh, the narrator's old room, is going to be a nanny for the narrator and his younger sister. The new boarder's name is Ursula Moncton, and she's young and pretty, and his sister loves her, but the narrator feels a pain in his heart when he looks at her. Uh, her outfit has the same colors as that creepy mystical cloth circus tent or sail thing <laughs> that uh, Letty <laughs> bound yesterday uh ursula tells them uh so the narrator and his sister she tells them they can't leave the property so of course he immediately tries to sneak out and find a a covert way to leave the property but ursula is always almost magically in his way as he does this almost yes Uh, 
he tries, you know, frustrated by this, he decides, I'm just going to go call Letty. He doesn't know what number, but he goes, just, I'm going to call information and get the hemp stocks. Uh, but Ursula is already on the phone when he picks it up and she tells him to cut it out. Uh, when his mom gets home, he tells her he does not like Ursula and she dismisses it. His dad uh, at dinner is very gregarious that night uh, and very pleased whenever Ursula laughs at his jokes that he's making. The next day, Ursula warns the narrator that if he tries to leave, she'll lock him in his room all day and make up horrible things he did to tell his parents that night. His dad actually comes home early from work while his mom has said she's going to be staying late at her work. And his dad gives a very flirtatious tour to Ursula around the family farm, which doesn't I mean, there's not a whole lot there. <laughs> The dad just really wants to show her around. Um, and at dinner, the narrator refuses to eat Ursula's meatloaf. He actually hasn't eaten anything that she has made. His his father orders him to eat it, and the boy refuses. The father stands up in a threatening way, and the boy runs, and he locks himself in the bathroom. It's the only door in the, in the house with a lock, so he knows this is a safe place. But then the dad like breaks the door down all the way and he grabs the boy and holds him. And then he turns on the cold water in the bathtub and puts the plug in Ursula and the narrator's sister are in the hallway. And the father turns and says, I've got this and tells him to leave. And when the tub is filled up, he holds his son under the cold water in the bathtub and the son struggles to breathe. And he thinks he's going to drown, but until finally he grabs his dad's tie and starts pulling his dad down into the water. And the dad finally lets go and says, it's a good thing your mom's not here and sends him to his room. <laughs> this is like in a, in a story with weird supernatural stuff, this is the most terrifying part. Actually, yeah. it's the dad just calmly holding his own son under the water in the bathtub. Uh, determined to get out of the house, the narrator sneaks out of his window in his bedroom and he climbs down the side of the house and he sees his dad and Ursula hugging in a very weird way that doesn't make sense to him because he's only seven years old. But for readers who are older, they they can work it out. Uh, he keeps going and he sneaks uh, and he, he runs towards the Hempstock farm, but there's a storm and wind and lightning and he gets turned around. Oh, and Ursula shows up floating above him and taunting him, which really makes him lose his focus. <laughs> lose his way a little. <laughs> Um, however, in his scrambling, uh, he must have gone far enough because Letty shows up and orders Ursula off of her land. And Ursula says the boy is her door is Ursula's door to this world. And uh, suddenly with some glowing light and energy, Letty blows Ursula away. Not like she's dis disintegrated, just like blows her back <laughs> with this wave of power. Um, and then... Uh, the the narrator and Letty go back to her farmhouse and Gran and Mrs. Hemstock debate what to do and they decide on doing something called a snip and stitch. And this is not explained. It just happens and we see the results and it seems to be that they're going to snip out memories from some people and stitch in new ones. In this case, uh, they mess with his dad's memory so he doesn't remember the bathtub incident or being even being angry at his son and he actually uh, his dad's going to come down to the farmhouse uh, with a toothbrush that his his dad is going to believe the narrator forgot when he left for a sleepover at the Hempstock farm. So the dad was like on his way angrily looking for a son. And now they've snipped and stitched it so that the dad just shows up and says, here's your toothbrush that you forgot. <laughs> I love how um, just a matter of fact and unexplained some of the magic in this is. Yeah. Uh, you just see the results. I love it when he asks them, he asks them at some point if they're witches. And they say basically yes. And he says, do you do spells? And they say, Sometimes we do recipes, but spells are common. <laughs> we, we don't do spells. My, my favorite of those kind of conversation is he asked uh, Letty, how old are you? And she says, I'm 11. And then he pauses and he says, how long have you been 11? And she just smiles at him <laughs> and walks away. Yes. <laughs> so good. Yeah. 
when his parents leave, um, the boy shows the hemstocks the hole in his foot. And old Mrs. Hemstock uh, sticks a needle into it and pulls out the remnant of the worm thing, uh, though the boy's heart burns or hurts when she does this. In the morning, Letty explains that Ursula isn't evil per se. She's just trying to give everyone what they want, which turns out maybe isn't a great thing for humans. (laughs) Uh, Letty gets some supplies to stop Ursula. Uh, They look a lot like broken toys. And then she and the narrator go back to his house. And Letty drops these broken toys into a, a pattern around the house. Uh, She says it's going to be kind of a barrier. And they go to Ursula's room, and Ursula is asleep, but the ceiling of her room has lots of strips of writhing gray cloth hanging from it, and the cloth attack, uh, these strips of cloth attack the boy, and Ursula runs off. Letty helps the boy escape from the cloths, um, and then they go after Ursula, and Ursula has been trapped by this barrier of broken toys that Letty dropped. And Ursula is scared. Ursula asks why Letty let the varmints in, and Letty says... I did not invite the varmints in. They seek after food and your food, Ursula. (laughs) So we don't know what the varmints are yet. Exactly. Ursula says the path back to her home is trapped inside of the boy. So she can't leave even if she wanted. And uh, Ursula turns back into this kind of cloth circus dent creature thing. And she grabs the narrator and says she's going to have to look inside of him for the path back to her home. And then Letty whistles and the varmints, which the narrator calls hunger birds, come and tear the cloth, uh, Ursula cloth thing apart. And there's no more Ursula. And (laughs) Letty tells the varmints to go. Uh, But they say they have not cleaned up everything they need to. They're not done. (laughs) So they're not going to leave. And Letty tells the boy he needs to go run to the center of a nearby fairy ring, which is a circle of grass. that's always greener than anything else around it. He says, that's not really a fairy ring. I just call it that. And she goes, no, go get in the fairy ring. (laughs) And you are not to leave until I come back for you. So the boy goes and sits inside the fairy ring. And while he's there, the South African uh, renter comes and tells him to leave it. So the man who had committed suicide earlier. And then the narrator recites poetry from Alice in Wonderland and just ignores this man. Then his sister comes to tell him it's time to come to dinner and he decides to sing Gilbert and Sullivan and ignore her. Then his dad comes to tell him he needs to come back to the house and the boy refuses uh, and then he starts crying and the dad insists that he comes and then the boy yells at his dad if it makes him, he says, does it make you feel big to make a little boy cry? And then the dad just looks crestfallen and turns sadly and walks back to the farmhouse. Uh, And then Ursula shows up uh, but that's not going to work. <laughs> like he does not trust Ursula. Like of all the forms that these <laughs> farms took, I don't know what they were thinking with Ursula. <laughs> uh, but then Letty like, might as well give it a shot. <laughs> yes, I guess. I mean, uh, then Letty walks up right to the edge of the fairy ring and says, "Hey, come on out now. I'm back." But he's pretty suspicious at this point. He is on to the tricks of the varmints. <laughs> Uh, then the varmints just return to their hunger bird forms and tell him he has a hole in his heart, which is going to ruin his life. So he might as well let them take it. But he doesn't really like that plan. Now the real Letty arrives and she has a bucket of water and she steps right into the fairy ring. And she sa- tells him to step into the bucket of water, saying the bucket has the ocean in it. And when he puts his feet into it, he sinks down all the way and is suddenly submerged fully underwater. Uh, and he, when he's underwater, he understands everything. Like he suddenly knows everything about the universe <laughs> like life the universe and everything else it's his to understand and he kind of was like i should stay here but letty says no knowing everything is going to destroy you so you need to get out and so he swims up to the surface and he comes out not at, from the bucket in the fairy ring but from the duck pond down on the hempstock farm and then they go back to the farmhouse now grand hempstock the oldest one she's asleep um maybe for a short nap or maybe for years letty's not sure because she got tired putting the ocean into a bucket <laughs> and the varmints come to the edge of the hempstock farm 
and they want to eat the hole in the boy's heart. But Letty says he is protected while he is on their land. But then the varmints start eating the world at the border of the Hempstock farm. Like they just start eating stuff and there's like nothing there anymore. And it's just like weird gray like matter. TV static. Yes, like TV static is what's left of the world after the varmints start eating everything around the Hempstock farm. And the boy realizes they're going to destroy the world <laughs> if, if they don't get him. So he actually um, run, runs out. Uh, to sacrifice himself and the varmints turn to attack him but before they get to him letty screams and runs and knocks him down and covers his body with her own and then he just hears her screaming and whether from letty's screaming or something else grandhamstock wakes up from that nap she was taking and she is not happy <laughs> she comes out <laughs> and she is furious and glowing and she orders the varmints varmints to put the world back <laughs> and they do like all those like, tv static parts they'd eaten they get put back but letty they can't fix her she's basically dead but not really because she can't die but she's pretty much dead and uh the hempstocks carry letty down to the duck pond and they set her body in the water which swallows it and grand hempstock tells the boy not to worry she's been given over to the ocean and the ocean will give her back when it's time and then the hempstocks take the boy back to his house and thank his parents for letting him come to letty's going away party she letty is moving to australia they tell his parents and then the boy starts to forget what has actually happen and he starts to remember the going away party that letty had before she goes to australia now epilogue we jump back to the present day where the adult narrator is still sitting and looking at the duck pond and grand hempstock brings him some tea and he asks why he's here and she says the same reason that he always comes back so this he doesn't know it but this isn't the first time he's found himself back at the hempstock farm uh she says he comes back to remember letty because she wants him to. And Ginny Hempstock, the other uh, um, Hempstock woman, she shows up and says he keeps coming back because Letty wants to see if her sacrifice was worth it. And maybe it was. He's better than the last time he was here. <laughs> That's what they say, which <laughs> bit of a burden you're putting on him right there. Uh, and they tell him that he needs to go uh, get back to the people who are waiting for him. And when he steps off the farmland, his memories fade away. The end. <sighs> That was really well done. There's some crazy stuff that happens in here that really um, only Neil Gaiman can describe, I think. Uh, yes, <laughs> I I totally agree with that. Um, when I was looking up trivia on this, I came across an NPR review of the book that was written by Annalie Newitz, and I really liked the way that she put it. She said, it's a deceptively simple tale that feels like escapism until you realize that it isn't. <laughs> the struggle between Letty's family and the evil force takes on darkly beautiful dreamlike proportions but every fantasy scenario is shot through with the tragedies of human reality. And even as the magic builds, so too does our knowledge that this boy and his family are deeply broken in ways that are all too mundane. Mm -hmm. and, and I like that because for me, like one of the most striking parts of this was that the worst horror wasn't magic magic. It was, yeah. it was his dad having the affair with Ursula immediately. It was the dad uh, holding him under the water. It was him finding the suicide, you know, the body of the man who committed suicide because of his gambling debts like that. Like all those things were more horrifying yeah, all, than this all the cloth worst creature things, and the varmints. All the worst things were things that happen. Mm -hmm. Like kids go through those things. Yeah. Hopefully yeah. not all of those things. <laughs> yeah. But each one of those things. Yeah. Yes. Like, like there's, there's abuse. There is, you know, there's uh, infidelity. There is suicide. Broken families. Yeah. Yeah. I just, um, I, I thought that this was such a, um, such an interesting sort of metaphor for childhood. I mean, especially for like a really hard childhood, but, um, 
we talked about so when we talked about the name of the win, we mentioned uh, Brandon Sanderson and and Patrick Rothfuss and the the way that they have these systems of magic. And Brandon Sanderson is like I don't know maybe the best maybe the best ever at devising these well, really I- complicated but very like logical systems of magic where everything he's, works and what, what's he's, that? He, he's really pointed about that. Like they call it Sanderson's law and it, and it, he it, like has this theory, like it's on Wikipedia and everything where right. like the literary theory is like the better your reader understands your like system of magic or, or for sci-fi technology, mm-hmm. um, like the ability for you to satisfactorily, in the conclusion of your story, use that magic is proportional to the way they understand it. Right. Um, so if, if it's really nebulous and like, I don't know how it works, then you can't use magic to solve your problem at the end. Yeah. Um, or well, it won't be a satisfying. Neil Gaiman does not, does not subscribe to Sanderson's law. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> not and, even and he pulls off. He, yeah. he pulls Yeah. Up. Neil Gaiman like, right. doesn't care about that. <laughs> yeah. Was, so if you have a, if you have a spectrum where on one side you have Brandon Sanderson, and somewhere in the middle, you have Patrick, Patrick Rothfuss, who mm-hmm. has an interesting system of magic that uh, he takes some effort to to try to explain how it works. And we discussed when we talked about Name of the Wind, how, you know, sometimes it stands up and sometimes maybe it falls down a little bit. Mm-hmm. Neil Gaiman, I mean, this is like... Yeah, this the is the other just, side of the spectrum. Yeah, it's a seven-year-old going, yeah, and then we'll take broken toys and we'll like put them around the house. And then they'll be stuck in the house. And then you stand in that fairy ring right there and you'll be safe. And like, why? And I'm like, well, don't, don't ask that. Right. And then I'll run and I'll take this bucket and I'll like fill it up with water and then I'll bring it. And then you step inside and then you go through the water and then you come out in the, in the pond. And like a seven-year-old goes, yeah, of course that, that's what would happen. But <laughs> like, there's no, there's no logic to any of it, but, um, but I don't find that that bothers me in the least. I think mm-hmm. so. so one thing definitely childlike. One thing that this is hitting for me, and it's going to involve a different kind of literary theory. <laughs> um, it's by a guy named Hayakawa, and he called it going up and down the ladder of abstraction. And he said, when you're writing, and he, he was talking about like academic writing, you need to go up and down this ladder of abstraction where at the bottom of the ladder is the firm, concrete, specific thing you're talking about. And at the top is the abstract thing where you start to understand how this is applicable in other situations. Mm-hmm. And, and so there's the firm concrete and then there's the abstract. And he says, if you get lost in the middle and stuck in this middle of the ladder, he called it like bureaucratic government language. That means nothing to anyone. He says, no one cares. No one <laughs> understands anything. And it doesn't matter anymore. And I feel like these systems of magic, you can either go hardcore into the rules or you just leave it all hand wavy. But if you get stuck in that middle where you're trying to explain too much, but you don't explain enough, that's where the yeah. system starts to fall apart. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I think you're right. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I find plenty of satisfaction in the Neil Gaiman style of magic that you get in, in this or Coraline or the graveyard book. It's like, mm-hmm. because it doesn't, it like, I can't logic through that magic, mm-hmm. but all of it feels right. Well, it's also it's like, instead of thinking, I feel every bit of that magic. It's like, yeah, of course, like, I, of course it works that way. I can feel how that works. Whereas a Brandon Sanderson, you have to think how it works. Yeah, and I, I mean, certainly, Gaiman's not the first to do this. Like, I think yeah. C.S. Lewis is more on the hand wave, like, oh, oh, the wardrobe sure. goes into Narnia. Why? Well, it does. Yeah, uh, and the yeah. giant lion sacrifices himself, and everything's better. Why? Oh, it does. Yeah, um, or like <laughs> Alice in Wonderland probably gets into this sort of absurd territory where it's like, yeah, okay, I don't know why this world is this way and why all these things are, and and you get things like the Jabberwocking. It's like, okay, this is just nonsense. Yes, but Neil Gaiman's yeah. in that. Category. Mm-hmm. Like he's in that territory. 
And I, I think I've read other fantasy stories without being able to put my finger on it as clearly until this discussion where it is kind of in that middle ground where they're explaining some, but then some of it's just left too vague that it's not satisfying for me. Yeah. So some of the Harry Potter magic isn't like, okay, I'm not sure if I'm quite thinking about it right. Mm-hmm. Um, or it hasn't quite but at the finished. same time. You do get classes that are explaining the rules. Yeah. A so lot. you get, you get some of it, but then mm-hmm. sometimes they get to a resolution and sometimes it's like Dumbledore says, it's like, well, magic just works like this. Yeah. Or just love. Love. Yeah. Does it's that. like, it's just love. <laughs> yeah. Like it's there like, are the like, rules, okay. but then there's the love side, so... which is why Expelliarmus does what it does. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> For Harry. Um, and so sometimes in Harry Potter, it's like, okay, well, this isn't quite justified by like the school that they're attending. <laughs> um, yeah. I just, I feel like, I feel like Neil Gaiman, maybe better than any any living novelist that i'm aware of i just when i read his stuff i feel like it pulls on my subconscious like so hard but in but in all the right ways um and it's so i mean it's so jungian this you have you know the conscious and the subconscious and like diving down into the ocean all the the imagery and the where the truth is there's there's definitely some water imagery here yeah yeah i mean it's in in a few different places like but it's it was moving for me i mean i was moved as i was listening to this um and especially in the end he's in that when he's in that circle and and uh the the what are they varmints are trying to get in and then Letty comes, and when she finally steps in, and the relief that it's that it's really her because she can just step right in, and she's got the bucket, and you know everything's going to be okay. Like it's a little eleven-year-old girl with a bucket, and yet you think, no, I, this is going to be great. And then he steps in and and has this like like biblical existential, yeah, existential <laughs> he thing. Sees it's amazing. The truth of all, yeah, yeah. And then and then for her to say, you know, you can't you can't stay here because you'll lose your individuality, right? Like you can't. You can't give in completely to that. You have to you have to pull back out. And 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 so it's not it's not complete surrealism, right? Where you just surrender completely to this, but it's about as close as you can get. And I feel like Neil Gaiman sort of takes you to the edge of the cliff and he lets you hang over the edge while he like holds on to the back of your t-shirt. And then eventually he goes, Okay, you have you have to come back, right? Like, <laughs> I'm not gonna I'm not gonna actually let you jump off this cliff, but I want you to feel something as close as I can get to you actually taking the plunge and, you know, losing yourself forever. It's just, I don't know. I think it's, it's beautiful. And, um, and really, I, don't know, I think it's powerful writing. Yeah. And, and um, he has, there's kind of a lyricism to his, to his prose that is different right. too. <laughs> like, like, yes, the ideas mm-hmm. that he's exploring are so different and kind of unique to like you. I, I think there's a feeling to Neil Gaiman's themes that you start to, mm-hmm. to get, but also the way that he's presenting those, like his word choices are just, it, it, it's unique. Like it is Neil Gaiman's voice. <laughs> um, and you can feel the care that he's taken. And, and, and it's different. Like we talked about some of this with, Patrick Rothfuss where like he would like have his narrator stop a chapter and talk about how hard a word choice is like that's a writer talking about writing <laughs> you know that's that's Patrick <laughs> Rothfuss talking about some of his own issues through through right. um so I think there's lots of care and other styles but there's just something different like there's a, a music to Neil Gaiman's um style right. that is is special yeah and when it's done right it's great it's funny the video there's isn't there a video on YouTube of him reading people's parody of his own <laughs> yes, writing? yeah so it was like <laughs> it was like submit bad Neil Gaiman yeah, and he reads it, but somehow when he reads some of them, I'm like, okay, but that almost sounds really good when he's reading it out loud. <laughs> it like, it, like I mean, it's it really almost sounds like him. Yeah, 
while we're giving credit to his voice, I will just say every December I listen to there's a uh, podcast from the New York Public Library of Neil Gaiman reading the Christmas Carol from Charles Dickens own personal notes for performance. because Charles Dickens just had a side career of going oh. around reading Christmas Carol. <laughs> I did not know that this existed. Yeah. And it's Neil Gaiman reading from his uh, Charles Dickens own performance version. Of, so oh, of so Christmas Carol. with his, his performance notes like pause here. Or- well, and also it was edited some for time mm-hmm. and everything. Yeah. It is really, something. that's available. Mm-hmm. It's for uh, yeah. free. Just yeah, just look up New York Library podcast Neil Gaiman Christmas Carol. You'll find it right away. Wow. <laughs> okay, well that's a new. That's Christmas the longest thing I've ever had anybody tell me to search for. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I'm sure you could probably just do Gaiman Christmas Carol. Uh, that would probably find you there. But I always just do it with the like New York Public Library. He also has a, a wonderful reading of the Raven. Yeah, oh, I yeah. think you could do some good Poe. Um, one thing that also stood out to me as I was thinking about this. Um, this book, which I've only engaged with it once, like it was for this, it was it was yesterday. I think. I it. It, yeah, it, it sounds like it's worth uh, engaging with again. Yes, yeah, I think there's there's definitely a surface that uh, you know when he goes down into the ocean and like mm-hmm. understands everything. I'm not there yet <laughs> with my understanding. Of, well, and, yeah. and just like of as you text. were you know describing it, I'm just thinking it's like there's some stuff here. There's some yeah. themes because like the water. It's like okay, he he like fully goes into the water twice at significant points of the story what's going on here what are the comparisons mm-hmm. you know things like that i was like and the fish with some... the coin and then he has the coin in yeah, his mouth like, from okay, the dream good. yeah there's yeah. some there's some themes here there's probably something here it's probably on purpose well something that stood out to me was the um when letty talks about everyone getting these problems from finding money <laughs> like like for some people they're like excited first and she's kind of like no this isn't a good thing and she said yeah. and, and then the, like the monsters find is like well she's the monster's trying to give people what they want. And that's what makes her villain. <laughs> it's, mm-hmm. it's kind of like this message, like humans don't quite know what's good for us. Well, and like the metaphor yeah. of choking on money. Yes. Oh yeah. Yeah. You know, but, choking on the thing you want. But then the other part of that though. So the, like, there's the monster that is like giving people what they want, be it his dad, you know, giving mm-hmm. him what he wants or giving people money indiscriminately. And that's going to ruin lives. Uh, and, and then, and that's what makes this creature so villainous is that it gives people what they want without caring about consequences. Mm-hmm. But then when he is down in the ocean and he's like, Oh, I understand everything. And Lady says, no, don't do that. <laughs> like you, you can't know everything. That's not good for you. You're going to lose yourself. So like, there's this uh, both from Letty and the Hemstocks who we've come to love. Like there's this moment of like too much is given to him mm-hmm. and the monsters villainous for giving too much. And, and I don't know if it's just that this stuff is unearned or we don't know what's good for us, but I think there's something about human nature and us sometimes yearning for things that aren't going to have the right consequences. Yeah. Almost self-destructive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I love it. Um, uh, when he says, uh, what Letty says, nobody looks like what they really are on the inside. You don't, I don't. People are much more complicated than that. It's true of everybody. And then the narrator says, are you a monster like Ursula Moncton? And it says, uh, Letty threw a pebble into the pond. I don't think so. think so, she said. Monsters come in all shapes and sizes. Some of them are things people are scared of. Some of them are things that look like things people used to be scared of a long time ago. Sometimes monsters are things people should be scared of, but they aren't. And <laughs> uh, it made me think of... Um, of uh, the over the garden wall and our mm-hmm. discussion of like, you know, what, what is the thing that you're really supposed to be afraid of? And I feel like he kind of summarizes uh, monsters pretty well there in that, in that paragraph. And I think that last one, especially right. The thing that you should be scared of that, that you're not. And, and that it seems like one of the things he's saying is the thing that we should be scared of and we're not is getting what we really want. <laughs> I feel like, 
I'm, I'm thinking about like this one specifically in conversation with the graveyard book and with Coraline, which are all Neil Gaiman works mm-hmm. and like trying to suss out some of the, the themes that he's dealing with and like what characters are afraid of and what they're overcoming in these stories. Mm-hmm. And it seems like there's always something that's trying to like destroy the main character. And that isn't necessarily like an existential destruction that's sometimes turning them into something that they aren't or something that they thought they wanted to be, mm. you know? And like the thing to overcome is don't let these other things change you in the wrong ways. Like I'm trying to like, you know, take these three different stories and, and see what I can extrapolate as far as a thesis. So for any listeners who aren't familiar in graveyard book, you've got, I, I mean, it's, it's a play on the jungle book where there's mm-hmm. a young boy who's raised in this case by ghosts in a graveyard instead of the animals in the jungle. And then he kind of learns his place that he needs to be among the living <laughs> instead of mm-hmm. uh, the, among graveyard, the dead, yeah, instead of living among the dead. Uh, and Coraline is about a girl who kind of goes into this alternate dimension where she has an other mother and other father who have buttons for eyes and they want to sew uh-huh. buttons under her eyes. But at so first they want to just make her happy. Yes. You know, and I feel like Coraline's got a lot in common with this one Mm -hmm. where it's like, here are all the things you want. Don't you want all these things? All you have to do is change. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Or just let me be, (laughs) just let, let Ursula be there. And Mm -hmm. like her, her desire is to give everyone else their desires. Yeah. But you know, which feels very Faustian, like, uh, like Dr. Faustus. Yeah. The classic story you know of of selling your soul to the devil like in the in the Marlowe play like he, he gets a lot of tries to figure out what it is that he really wants and he mm-hmm. never really settles on it and he loses his soul yeah so uh, it's like all, all you have to do to get what you want is give up what you are yeah and neil gaiman you know it seems to time after time say it's like that's obviously the wrong choice. Don't give up what you are. Well, and also we we don't know like what we want isn't necessarily what's going to be good for us. Yeah. And also he he's always he's couching this with kids like in graveyard book by the end he's like maybe 14 like 12 or 14 ish yeah somewhere like early adolescence Coraline is is probably like 10 and in this one he's seven the whole time and it's an 11 year old that saves him and so he's always doing this quote unquote 11 year old yeah (laughs) but he's always doing this with children Uh um and saying you know learn learn at this point now don't give up what you are for what you think you want Mm -hmm. and like what you are is more important or something, you know, I'm just trying to think through, you know, what Gaiman is doing with this stuff. Because they all seem consistent. They seem to be saying similar messages. You know, he's he's not contradicting himself with these different stories. No, he's, I don't think he's contradicting himself. I think that it's such a tricky thing to say, you know, like, be who you are or don't lose who you are or something like that, especially yeah. in childhood. Mm-hmm. Because there's so much change. Like, children are so dynamic. And where is it that he says, there's a part in the story where he says um, it's about um, stories and that the only stories that matter are where the characters change. Mm. And if they don't, then there's, there's, there's nothing there. Oh, so like one thing, uh, here's a quote from the book. Nothing's ever the same, she said, be it a second later or a hundred years, it's always churning and roiling and people change as much as oceans. Well, I, I think the epilogue, too, is like it's a different statement about like be who you are, right? Where he comes back and he like he doesn't remember that he comes back. Mm-hmm. He just feels drawn to it. And he, and he kind of says, why am I here? And she's, well, the same reason you always come because she wants to see if her sacrifice was worth it. Like you're changing, you're growing, you're evolving. And she wants to see what you've become. 
Um, and like from the hints that we get at the beginning, like he, he mentions like the small chat, uh, the small talk that he hates at the funeral where like people are like, Oh, you know, what's up? And he's like, I've got to tell him my marriage fell apart. And you know, I've moved on from that. Right. <laughs> which, which from your, um, I, so I didn't read it. Yeah. Um, but from your summary, you know, I didn't get a sense of who he is really, mm-hmm. because you know, you, you kind of dove through the epilogue and prologue into this story. And so, you well, know, we don't, I don't know. Well, I don't know. It's a really brief prologue. We're not, we don't yeah. know what his job is. It feels vague. Like, am I right in thinking like I had a sense he was does something in artistic, right? Todd, do you get that? I can't even remember. It's yeah, been a few we, weeks. We, we, but we don't even know whose funeral he was just yeah, at. And he's, he's doing better than last time. Yeah. That's all but it says. When wanna, was that? How which old to me, is he? How old was he? If you want to like inspire midlife crisis, <laughs> like realize some supernatural being saved your life as a child and she's judging your choices <laughs> as you go through life. <laughs> like just, uh, I, I think I would start to question everything I've ever done. If I was at that, uh, you know, sitting on the edge of the duck pond and like remembering, Oh, right. Hmm. Has my life been worth this? What, what Letty did for me? I'm sorry. I'm still trying to, I'm still like just combing through these things. No, I want to, I really want to find this one. Cause I think that it, um, I think it really sums up that thing, but I'm, I, I mean, I don't know. I don't want to spend the whole night doing this. So anyway, yeah, that's what he says. Basically he says the only stories that matter are the ones where the characters change. And so, so to say, you know, like be true to yourself, I think is hard, but, but then it's, um, but there is something there, right? Like mm-hmm. there is, there is something that you're being true to. Um, one, one thing in, in the case of this story is he has to be true to Letty, right? Like he, he has to learn to follow her instructions perfectly. And the, he does it when they go and and meet the 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 sale lady ursula bad ursula when she's like crazy the first time uh and they go through that weird scavenger hunt which is so cool (laughs) and then uh they get there and she says don't let go of my hand and then ursula throws the thing and he lets go of the hand and that's what lets uh lets ursula into him um it seems like such a small thing but has huge consequences but by the end he's learned his lesson and when he's inside that fairy ring then he's he's changed and there's no way that anything is going to get inside of there and some of those things are pretty scary um and some of them are are fairly convincing uh but he's just he's learned to be that he has to be true to that thing right he has to be true to letty it's it's almost like don't be true to yourself but be true to her like don't trust yourself Mm -hmm. trust her because she knows what's better for you more than you know what is good for for yourself and and i think we learn uh there's such a sense of peace and safety on the hemstock farm that is so absent from his own hmm. from his own place which is just a a, a horror show well I, I to me one thing that was interesting too like when we say his own place is a horror show um like when we first meet his dad doing like the the dinner with his son like it's kind of a charming scene <laughs> like mm-hmm. dad always burns the toast there's no like simmering anger or underlying sense of a bad relationship like it even says like the dad wishes he would be into sports like he was when he was a kid but he's not so he buys him a comic book every week 
like like right. the dad like at that moment the dad seems pretty good and when the we get like the super dark turn from his dad it's hard to know like how much of this is ursula somehow manipulating the dad mm-hmm. how much of this is something that was there in the dad all along how much of this is is you know what you know is the dad really abusive and we just haven't seen it up to this point um mm-hmm. so there is um like there there's like you said it's a horror show but like it's hard to know how much of that is just this moment that we see <laughs> you know versus, i think we find out later on like their parents separated uh it's just hinted at in in something um so obviously not what well, you know there's some bad choices by the father but it's also yeah. hard to know well, how much of this is supernatural weirdness he says that it's not until he's in his 20s that he's able to have a relationship with his father yeah again so uh, <sighs> I don't know. I mean, well, there's also that moment, like one really interesting moment. That I'm not quite sure what to make of when the, when the hempstocks do the, was it the snip and stitch where the dad's yeah. not going to remember it anymore. And they give him something and they say, well, this is the memory. Uh, if I were you, I'd burn it. And he says, if I burn it, will I forget that his dad tried to kill him in the bathtub? Like, will I uh-huh. forget? And they say, well, do you want to? And he says, no, it happened. And I'm still here. And I think it's a part of me. <laughs> and yeah. so he, like it seems like they were giving him a choice of losing that memory or keeping it and he chose to keep it which then yeah. later on he loses all the memories of all this weirdness of you know like he only remembers that memory when he's remembering everything at the duck pond when he keeps coming back to the hempstock farm interesting so you think that when he loses his memory of the of letty and gran and everybody you think that he loses the memory of his dad trying to drown him in the in the tub i don't know that's yeah because i think that you think that think stays that- I do. Well, because they, uh, it mentioned, like, I can't remember, like, it's at the very end, like, it says, uh, the sister said, oh, maybe it's in the epilogue that he says, like, Ursula was fired, and his sister told him she thinks Ursula had an affair with their, with their dad, so, mm-hmm. like, the memory of Ursula being there is definitely still there. So, yeah, I would say the bathtub yeah. stays. I think the bathtub stays. This, this, um, remember when we talked about Kubo and the Two Strings? We were with Brandon, mm-hmm. and he said that he, he had this theory that um, like none of this stuff was real, but that it was it it was sort of a, a manifestation of of this young boy sort of navigating some real situation that was that was really hard for him. And so he sort of overlaid it with this, I don't know, like patina of f- fantasy or something. Do you remember that? Yes. And um, I feel like there's something like that going on here. Uh, where there are real concrete events and the fantasy is is a a way like a, a coping way of, mechanism yeah like a coping mechanism it's a way of telling the story uh to try to couch it in a context that allows for um like growth for it to be uh something positive and but this is almost the reverse is what happens where like his coping mechanism would be the fantasy. And that's what he forgets. That's what he's missing. <laughs> that's like his mind like, removes all the fantasy and gives him right. the mundane version of his dad was abusive and, and had an affair with their nanny. Right. But every, every year or every once in a while, he has this opportunity to come back and he's drawn back to the place and he sits down on the bench next to the, next to the pond. And then these memories like wash back over him and uh, and the the ladies remember him, and they are seeing him change over time. I don't know. I I think I, this is why I think this is a great book because if we went back and read this tomorrow, we would we would mine so much more out of it. And I feel like this is a deep well. I mean, 
you know, like we're talking about oceans and there's an ocean in a bucket. <laughs> in this, in no, this I think there really is. Like this is one. It it in in some ways it reminds me of until um, we have faces in the sense that you read it and you think, oh man, there is a lot going on here, and uh, I know that we're just scratching the surface. Like there's there's a lot a lot going on here. It's stuff with myth and archetype. Um, there's psychoanalytic stuff and. Uh, I, I just, I think Gaiman, and I think Neil Gaiman is at the top of his game when he's doing this children's literature. I mean, yes, I've read some of like his other quote, stuff. Quote unquote children's yeah. literature. Well, I'd say this one because of, uh, you know, there's the affair. Like it's, it's not the this same as the graveyard book. Yeah. This is, this a, is not a, a child, this is not a child's book. Yeah. 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 So uh, let me rephrase but, that. But the when he's story about, about Yeah. A story about children. Yeah. Whereas like yeah. Coraline so and the graveyard book are, are targeted for kids yeah um definitely right. more so than this yes yes absolutely um but he's writing about children and i feel like when he writes about children uh he writes really really well <laughs> and i think that he recognizes the the power of that um that childlike state and Right. Yeah. I, I think one thing that is so pleasant about his version of childhood when he writes about children is that it's not a naive version of childhood or just a, a like a less experienced adult, which some authors, I get that feeling where it's like, oh, you know, the, there's not anything that's really different about how the child is seeing the world other than they lack experience. Like they're they're missing something for when Neil Gaiman writes about children, they see the world differently than adults do. <laughs> and you feel that when you read the narration of like the child explaining their worldview, like it, it's not that this is, you know, a child that is just. Um, going through the motions of childhood, like they are living in a different world than their parents are living in, in the same space. Mm -hmm. um, well, almost, except that in this book, it all, there's also that great quote where uh, Letty tells the narrator that all adults look just like kids on the inside. Do you remember that? I do. I, I well, yeah, I, I think the... So it's like, not like, like the, the, the error is when you write a story where the kids look like grownups in small bodies, but the the right way to do it, I think Neil Gaiman would say, is to write the adults as if they were <laughs> children, children yeah. in, in grown up bodies, right? Like that, there's something that that child that stays in us for oh, forever. For we're me, all eleven. We've all been eleven for a very long time. For me, that was just a, a quick little commentary about imposter syndrome, where every adult feels like they don't belong in whatever role they've taken, and there's yeah. waiting. Somebody's gonna, call get, somebody's gonna figure out that, <laughs> that I'm not ready for this. Yes, someone's gonna call me out and say, "What are you doing here?" I'm just gonna say, "I don't know. I just ended up." doing this <laughs> someday everyone will realize the mistake they made in letting us have the keys to the car <laughs> and that really i mean that sounds like a, a good way to look at how neil gaiman writes all of his characters except for a few like there's sometimes where you're reading something where like like letty is like Okay, but she's a child, and that doesn't feel like a child inside that child. Like, <laughs> you know, he he has these characters who have all of the experience and wisdom, and somehow are no longer children. You know, occasionally, mm -hmm. but then when uh -huh. you look at like the adults, he writes most of the time, like you know, kids' parents or their neighbors or or whoever. It's like, yeah, that sounds that sounds about right. Mm -hmm. That sounds like how he's written this character. Um. But then sometimes it's like, 
Okay, but there's these enigmas that know everything. <laughs> yes, that have been through the ocean. He uh, so he, that oh so, okay, so, I found the quote. Oh, I was just gonna say real quick about, uh, go that he's so great at writing children. He's also so great at presenting enigmas that don't bother you in their ambiguity. Um, mm-hmm. Where I think uh, I've I know I've tra- probably tried to write, and I've read other writers doing this, where like there's something that's quite uh, not quite describable in what you want to present, but it can just come off as like mm, this isn't quite working for me. And when Neil Gaiman <laughs> does it, it's like oh, give me more of this vagueness. I want more, yes, <laughs> more of this ambiguity. <laughs> oh, that's so great. So the the quote from Letty says, "I'm going to tell you something important. Grown ups don't look like grown ups on the inside either. Outside they're big and thoughtless, and they always know what they're doing." Inside, they look just like they always have, like they did when they were your age. The truth is there aren't any grownups, not one in the whole wide world. I can tell you, having gone through some recent fairly significant like home renovations, I felt like so childlike at times. Like, I don't know what I'm supposed to do. My kids were around. So I'm like, just hand me that tool. <laughs> <laughs> like in reality, I'm like, I don't know what I'm supposed to do next. Where's a YouTube tutorial to explain this to me? <laughs> But, you know, for a kid, like I, I'm just, I remember that, like, oh, dad's fixing that thing. And you don't think about the the uncertainty and the the, you know, the lack of confidence that, <laughs> that is part of doing these things for the first time, even as adults. Yeah, I, th- I think he doesn't he does a really interesting thing. It's almost like he. It's like sleight of hand, where on the one hand, he tells us you know, the quote that I just read about that there are no adults, basically everybody is a child in an adult's body or a child in a child's body, but we're all children. But then he does make really stark distinctions between the way that children behave in the world and the way that adults behave in the world. Um, the way that, that children, the kind of stories that children like and the kind of stories that adults like. And the seven-year-old narrator saying, I can't understand why an adult would read an adult novel because they're boring as heck. And mine are so much better, these children's stories. Or when he says, um, he says, Letty Hempstock's hand in my hand made me braver. But Letty was just a girl, even if she was a big girl, even if she was 11, even if she had been 11 for a very long time. Ursula Monkton was an adult. It did not matter at that moment that she was every monster, every witch, every nightmare made flesh. She was also an adult. And when adults fight children, adults always win. Which is... I mean, it makes me think of the of the scene with the dad, and that like just complete feeling of helplessness. Um, but the, but here he makes a really clear distinction between children and adults, and that um, the the very scariest thing, right? Not every like right every monster, every witch, every nightmare made flesh. But the thing that really makes her scary is that she's an adult, and when a child has to go up against an adult, the adult's always going to win, and. Uh, I th- I think one of the powerful things about this uh, that we've that we touched on is the way that um, the f- the fantasy is uh, it can be kind of mem- mesmerizing, um, but the scariest thing is just the real life, right? Like as you look at as you look past the fantasy elements and you see suicide and abuse and uh, just poverty and um, a broken home, and, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah, infidelity and those kinds of things. Uh, that's that's really the the scariest thing about this, and the thing that makes this not really a, a children's book. Yeah, well, like, um, I mean, I, I've said I love it when Neil Gaiman does the ambiguity, but like the vivid moment is the father holding his son under the cold water in the bathtub. Like that's the mental right. image that 
will not leave me. <laughs> Whereas like, we're like, oh, there's this circus tent thing. Well, I saw it more as a sale, <laughs> you know, a right. sale. like, okay, well, that, that's fine. <laughs> yeah. Or like, what do the birds look like? The, the hunting, the, the, the hunger birds. birds. Uh, I don't. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. No uh, idea. But I can see. But what does the dead guy father. look in the car? Yeah. And I can see a father holding his son under cold water. And, the, and like from the point of view of the son looking up at his dad through the mm-hmm. distortion of the water splashing in the bubbles. Like I can have mm-hmm. that. And I can also so see. So hard and concrete in my head that it, that is terrifying. Like yeah. the realness of that horror versus the hunger birds eating the reality and leaving television static behind. <laughs> like there's just something that's yeah. so much more terrifying for a reader and particularly a young reader. I think if, if any young readers engage with this about, I, I would not recommend it. No, no. <laughs> but I mean like even like no. young adult, like teenage, yeah. You know, teenagers reading this. I think there's something so much more horrifying about that imagery versus the, you know, the more ambiguous supernatural threats. Yeah. I mean, the, those are the three that stand out to me are the dead guy in the car, the beginning uh, the the scene with the dad and the bathtub and then the the looking through the window and seeing his dad with Ursula, you know, hugging in that weird way. And it's like, <laughs> and it, 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 again, Neil Gaiman is just, he's good at what he does, but for, to describe that through the eyes of a seven-year-old um, and I, I just, it's, it's really well done. <laughs> and, and, I mean, I think Neil Gaiman's even said these kinds of things in in interviews. Like, part of what he's trying to do is show overcoming all of these fantasy things at really just as metaphors of like, there's going to be the real hard stuff in life that's really yeah. going to happen. This was much more concrete and, in dealing yeah. with the hard things. <laughs> yeah, like the juxtaposition <laughs> of of that in this story mm-hmm. is, I think, the most concrete he's ever yeah. put it. Um, where he's like. There's the real hard things and there's the fantasy stuff. And the reason I write stories about overcoming this fantasy stuff is because sometimes you might need that to get through some of these real things. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I remember all the way back, it was in like our 13th or 14th episode when we did the graveyard book. I think I came across the quote when he won one of the many awards that he won for, for that one in his speech. He said, I think we need to write more scary books for kids because it's emotional inoculation for reality. Yeah, like like right. you feel the fear from a safe place. Um, uh, and that prepares you some, not like it's not the exact same as having, you know, scary things or emotional things happen to you in reality, but it starts to get you used to having those emotions and, and getting, you know, being able to deal with those emotions. Mm-hmm. He, yeah. he was kind of pushing back against, um, you know, just making everything for children safe. He says, you know, I, obviously I want them to be safe, you know, I want kids to be safe, but I think we also need to introduce some of uh, you need them to overcome the hard fear. Things. Yeah, exactly. So, so and or, in order to do that, you're going to have to scare them a little <laughs> bit. Like if you want them to overcome <laughs> fear through a story, that means you have to introduce fear so into you, them. So you're going to make an other mother with and button then, eyes. Yeah. And it's like, it's like you have to feel scared and then get through it. That's the point. If you can't do it in this story, it's going to be really hard when you know, something scary happens in life. And I, I think like a, another, like a, a even more mainstream, than Neil Gaiman version of this is like in JK Rowling, like with the, uh, you get to the fourth book. It's like, Oh, Cedric died. Like that was probably, I'm guessing for a lot of young readers, the first time a character that they had come to like a lot died mm-hmm. in a book. Yeah. Yeah. And a real shifting point in that series. Yeah. It's a shifting point. The, in the, the series. fourth book is like crazy shift. <laughs> yeah. Unless they've read them. Um, so the other day uh, I was, I saw that um, the Netflix the white thing that's on Netflix. Have you guys seen that show? I've, not, I've seen that. It's, With, on it's there. got a Nick, uh, what's his name? Nick Offerman. Uh-huh. Oh, 
uh, he he's the voice of of one of the guys. But um, well, maybe I need to watch this show. <laughs> yeah, and then the Anne, the the Anne from uh, Parks and Rec, she's the woman. So it's cool, and uh, and Paul Giamatti's in it. Oh, this, um, is, this is a it's good, good cast. It's good voice work. Yeah, and the the animation is really um, it's really interesting and uh, kind of beautiful. But um, so I said, hey kids, I'm gonna watch this movie. We we should sit down and watch it together. And uh, my daughter said, is it about dogs? And I said, yeah. And she said, I don't want to watch it. And I said, why not? And she said, all dog movies are sad. <laughs> they always make the dog die. <laughs> so the dogs always die. And I was like, you know, in my mind, I'm like, old yeller, check. Red fern grows. <laughs> Where the red fern grows. Check. Check. Charlie and me, check. <laughs> like, <laughs> all yeah, dogs but... go to heaven, big check. Turner and Hoot, kind of check. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, um, wow, I think she's really onto something. So um, <laughs> anyway, I think uh, so fantasy books and dog movies. That's what gives us our inoculation for life. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, any final thoughts on the ocean at the end of the lane? Um, the, the, uh, the other day I read something uh, by the president of our college, and he was talking about um, – like pursuing the good and uh, trying to find things as professors, like as, as we think about the things that we that we encourage our students to study, uh, trying to find like the very best and something that you could. He was talking about like um, Aristotle and you know try to find something that you know not 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 one of the ten best books you've ever read but one of the top three books you've ever read and i'm I can't say ocean at the end of the lane is one of the top three books I've ever read uh but it feels like it pushes into a level of th- things where I feel like there's a depth there and that it would reward um multiple readings and that uh it would mean something at mean different things at different points in in your life uh when you read it and uh so i think this is a very very good book maybe it says something and, about uh, where i'm at I'm in my life that i pulled out the midlife crisis feeling at the end when, <laughs> 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 yeah i mean it could be <laughs> i don't know it says oh i have my choices i think sometimes about like the books that you guys have talked about throughout the course of protagonist and you know, different books have, have different meanings and, and impacts and everything. This sounds like the kind of book that like in college, when we were reading novels and like supposed to do a literary analysis, like Joseph's synopsis of this makes it sound like the book that like it would impact me the way those books that I sort of read in college <laughs> were quote unquote, supposed to impact me. Like, <laughs> Okay, all the pretty horses didn't really do that much. Like, sorry, Cormac, but you know, you just didn't hit me anyway. <laughs> but I feel like this for Cormac, you need the road. Well, <laughs> that one hits you. Yeah, um, but you know, for this, it seems like it would have that impact that I was supposed to be getting, mm. um, and and so rarely got. In part because I probably wasn't reading them <laughs> as because you were reading five other things for yeah, six other like, classes. I, I wasn't, and... you know, yeah. reading it as much as I was supposed to be, you know, or, you know, with as much depth or, or whatever, you know, I was skimming it much more, but like they talk about, you know, mosquito coast, it's supposed to hit you and you know, you're supposed to feel things like, 
Well, listening to this synopsis made me feel things. And Mosquito Coast made me think a little bit. But this, (laughs) I think, is what they're talking about. Where it's like, this is great literature. It's supposed to get to you. Yeah. uh, And there's always, like, there is within the Academy, definitely, like, this line of, like, well, that's genre fiction and this is real literature. Mm -hmm. Um, I think Neil Gaiman is one of those where, like, if you engage with Neil Gaiman, you're going to realize... you okay. can let that you can let that cross that line. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we we can transgress that border pretty easily. Um Yeah. I don't I mean I I I don't know that everything Neil Gaiman's done reaches this level. No, I, I don't think, don't, it, I don't does. think it does. This is really this is really This pushing, one sounds pushing. like a different yeah, level of, of stuff. One that he always seems capable of, but usually doesn't dig into. Yeah. Well, I mean, I've I've enjoyed this discussion, but I feel like we're kind of like looking down into the bucket, and we haven't stepped <laughs> into the ocean yet in this, because uh, again, both of us have engaged with this story once at this point, uh, and I think it would yeah. uh, reveal a lot more with with more engagement. Certainly, I like the book even more after having this discussion, <laughs> and I liked it before. <laughs> well, that's what that's how it's supposed to yeah. be, right? I think that is going to wrap up this episode. So thank you for joining us for show notes and links to all the other great dueling genre shows. Go to duelinggenre.com. Also, please subscribe to the protagonist podcast in your podcast app of choice. And please leave us a review. That really helps us out. We would like to thank Nick English who designed our logo and Scott Tofty who composed our theme music. If you enjoyed this episode, you may want to go check out episode number 14. When we talked about the graveyard book, that was a ways back. Guys. Yeah. <laughs> that was almost four years ago. <laughs> oh, <laughs> really? Well, yeah, we've been doing wow. this for almost four years. <laughs> Uh, and so, yeah, episode number 14, uh, the graveyard book or episode number 188, much more recent when we talked about the name of the wind, you can suggest stories or characters for us to discuss or give us any comments or corrections by emailing feedback at protagonistpodcast.com. We're also on Twitter at protagonist pod or at Todd K Mac or at Jay Dorowski. And our producer, Andrew is at Diz minute. And our Facebook fan page is facebook.com slash protagonist podcast. We have really good conversations there with our listeners and would love for you to say hello anytime. If you would like to support the show financially, you can buy a topic for us to discuss or show your appreciation with a monetary donation by going to patreon.com slash protagonist. Thank you again for listening. And we'll be back next week to discuss another great character and a great story. So long. Uh, th- thing things are uh, things are not great on our audio feed. Todd. Oh, <laughs> that was you had it fine, Joseph. You could have stepped right in. He didn't need your input. <laughs> that was so choppy. Are we sounding metallic and delayed to you? No, you sound fine to me. Okay, once more from the top. I'm sorry. No, it was fine. I know. Just jump I... in with the how are you? Wait, do you want to have to make an edit, or do you just want to start with the new? I'm gonna make the edit on accident anyway. I'm not gonna remember this in two weeks. Okay. <laughs>